Well, a, a name um, means something, right? A name means something. Parents uh, will often agonize uh, over what to name their child. Uh, I have some friends who have had their, their child's name picked out before they were even married, right? And, and then they had discussions with their future spouse that this will be the name of our children, right? Uh, Donald Trump, right, he's built his entire brand upon his name plastered it on everything that he owned, right? When people hear that name Trump, they respond in one way or another, whether it be positive or negative. Uh, I've heard that, that I was named personally after uh, some kid my parents knew who was named Matthew, and he was just a nice kid, right? Just the sweetest kid is how my mom says it. And, and so that reputation that he had uh, was attached to his name, and so much so that my parents, when, when they were having me, they're like, we're going to name him Matthew because that's what they thought of when they thought of that name, someone nice and sweet. Now, I, I hope that I'm a pleasant person to be around. Um, I hope that uh, I act with honesty and integrity uh, and that I'm a, a sweet person. Uh, but in reality, uh, a human-given name doesn't mean that's necessarily going to happen, right? Like all our names have a meaning behind them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what you're going to be, right? Just because I was named after someone who happened to be a nice person didn't mean I was just naturally going to have that happen with me as well. Uh, some of us might be uh, familiar with the popular adage from Shakespeare, uh, his, his, his play Romeo and Juliet, where Juliet says, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, right? So that line is coming from this, this part in, in Shakespeare's play where Romeo was, was coming from her family's rival house of Montague. And so she's arguing uh, that, that it doesn't matter what name he carries, right? It doesn't reflect who he is. It doesn't matter that he's our family rival. That name should not impact who he is. Though we can agree that, that a person's name doesn't necessarily affect or reflect who they truly are as a person, right? Like I'm sure at some point in human history there's been someone in prison who had the name Angel, right? Uh, or, or I'm sure there's somebody throughout human history that's had the name Hope who's like the most pessimistic person to be around, or, or someone with the name Joy that you're like, man, they're just angry all the time, right? Like, I'm sure that's, that's reflected of, of our names, but, but when we think of the name of God, which is what this psalm is taking us to, it's not the case at all when it comes to the name of God. His name is unchanging, right? God's name tells us everything that we need to know about him. And, and God's name reflects who he truly is. And, and because of this, we can have then great confidence, great confidence in his deliverance and his help in times of need because our God is a helper. That is his name. This is who he is. This is what this psalm reveals. You see, when you look at Psalm 54, if you notice the, the superscription next to the, the, the psalm title, that is, it's the title that's, that's written next to the psalm number. It tells us what this psalm is and when it was written and who it was written about, and even here specifically what was going on historically when this psalm was written. It's connected to Psalm 52, if you remember from a, a few weeks ago, which was a, a time in David's life before he was king, where he was being hunted by, by King Saul, who was just jealous of David's fame. He was jealous of, jealous of just David's rise in popularity. And so Saul is pursuing him and trying to hunt him down. So David's in hiding. David's running. So in Psalm 52, you remember a few weeks ago, we, we remember David was being ratted out 
by Saul or ratted out to Saul by this man named Doeg, who was an Edomite. He was a clear enemy of Israel. But here, in Psalm 54 this morning, David is being ratted out again, but not by clear enemies, but actually by countrymen. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 23, David had just previously, this is what's happening in this scenario here, David had just rescued with his, with his band of followers, his, his army that's with him just had rescued a nearby city full of Ziphites from attacking Philistines and brought safety to the entire region. And so now David is kind of living among them and kind of hiding among them from, from Saul. And some of the Ziphites heard he was there, knew what was going on, knew that Saul was after him, and turned on him. And came to Saul and told him, hey, David's hiding among us. And and so during this season of David's life, he's being betrayed not only by his enemies, but he's also being betrayed by those he would think would be his allies, his his friends. This has to be a very disillusioned time in David's life. He has to be thinking as he's writing this, who can I trust? Like, where, where do I go? Where do I turn to? Obviously, my enemies are against me, but also people I've just rescued from an attacking, uh, attacking army. I've rescued this area, and they're still turning on me, right? This psalm is a prayer from a very desperate and hurting man, a man who is seeking by God's grace to do what's right, and yet still finds himself on the receiving end of betrayal and personal attack against his own character. Have you ever been there? <laughs> Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt the sting of betrayal? Has your reputation, has your name ever been attacked by, by those you thought and considered to be your friends? Have you ever felt desperate for, for hope and for help? I mean, David sure did. And so what does he do? What did he do? Well, he, he does through the psalm what we should do. He calls on the name of his God. He rests in a name that is a, a sure foundation. He, he turns to a name that means something and does not sway. He places faith in the one who can and does deliver. See, ultimately, as we're going to see, this psalm points us even to the person of Christ, who is the perfect expression of God's name, the perfect expression of God's, of God's glory. It's a psalm here to, to rehearse together corporately, to, to, to read this aloud and to read it together and to remind one another of these, of these truths. You see, look at the, the superscription again next to Psalm 54. It says, to the choir master. This was apparently a song that was written and was sung corporately together as God's people to remind them of God's name, to remind them of God's character, to remind them over and over again that God is a God who delivers and helps and upholds. I mean, this is just a, a quick sub-point to make here, a sub-point before I even get to my first point, but now when we, when we sing together, like as we have just done this morning, when we sing together corporately, yes, we are singing out praise and worship to our God, right? We're singing about his name. We've done that this morning. We've, we're singing about his character, and we're singing about his salvation. But as we sing, and when the church sings and gathers and sings corporately, what we're also doing in that moment is that we're singing with one another and with one voice. And as we are doing this, we're reminding one another, as we're saying these words that we're singing, we're reminding one another, believe these truths. Believe what we're seeing. 
Believe what we're singing. Believe what we are holding to as the church. So when, when we come in here, whatever you, you, scenario you find yourself in here this morning, you, you come in and, and you're going to hear brothers and sisters around you to say, remember who God is. He's alive. He's alive. He's not in that grave. Like That's what we were doing just a moment ago when we sing together. And so when we, as we sing these truths together, we're saying to one another with our song, with our voice, rest in this truth. Hope in this truth. Believe this truth. That's what this psalm does for us today as well. Hear this truth about our God. Call upon his name for help and deliverance. Rest in his faithfulness. So let's, let's look at how God saves us, how he vindicates us as we cry out to him. Uh, we're going to see how our desperation uh, then leads us into a dependence on him, which then, as we'll see at the end, results in our deliverance and devotion to him, right? So uh, the first three verses of this psalm reveal uh, my first main point here, and that is David's desperation for God. We see David's desperation for God in those first three verses. Now, we've already seen in the, in the superscription the, the historical background which led to the psalm being written, but verse three gives a little bit more detail around what's going on in David's heart. And so in verse three it says, uh, for strangers, they've risen against me. Ruthless men, they're seeking my life. They do not set God before themselves. And so as, as Christ followers, we can and should expect, anticipate some form of pushback, ridicule, verbal attack from, from unbelievers, from, from the world. Right? Jesus very clearly taught his disciples that, listen, guys, the world's going to hate you because it hated me first. Right? The world is not going to accept you. Don't look for acceptance from the world. Well, why is that? Why did Jesus teach his disciples this and tell them, here's what you're going to anticipate as you go? Well, it's because the gospel message, the message in which we proclaim and hold to, it's offensive. Right? Like the, have you ever thought that the gospel is an offensive message to the human heart? Because the gospel is calling on a person to repent it's calling on a person to say, you are not your savior. You are not your own deliverer. You are desperately sick. Your heart is wicked. It is, is corrupt. You need salvation outside of yourself. You need to repent and turn and come and turn in faith to Jesus, not to yourself. Right? To, to the human heart that's unredeemed, that's outside of God's grace, in the, like that, that's an offensive message. And as the church, we're, we're going to, as a church, we are called to and are uh, commissioned to, to call out sin, to call out sin for what it is. We don't accept sin in the heart of anybody, right? Sin is rebellion against God the creator. Sin is a failure from, from us and by us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and because of this rebellion of which all of humanity is guilty of, then humanity stands underneath a holy God condemned before him and in need of salvation that comes only through faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so we go, like we're going to be sent here in about 20, 30 minutes with this message, right? This message of the gospel and say, go into the world and proclaim it. Proclaim what the world doesn't naturally want to hear, right? Now we go, we go with grace, we go with love, we go with peace, but, but we do go with boldness, right? So, but then as we go, listen, we, we don't go with a bullhorn shouting at people. No, we, we listen, right? We care, we show compassion, but, but this gospel message 
no matter how much sometimes the, the church tries to pretty it up, right, to, to, uh, to a heart that is unregenerated, right, it is, it is, it is, it is the stench of death, right? Like, I want, I want to hear it. But we go with this in grace and peace and love and care and compassion for our fellow man, but knowing it's going to be offensive to the world. So, so we need to expect that type of pushback, right? I think that's clear with us here this morning. What we don't often expect or what we don't often anticipate, though, is to be hurt by those we thought were close to us, those we thought we knew, those we thought, I thought you were with us. I thought you were with me and for us. Maybe, maybe even those that we once broke bread around our, our tables at home. Nothing stings more than a, a betrayal from someone that we once trusted. And that's what's happening here in this psalm. David uses the word stranger in verse 3, but these men who turned on him were, as we said, his fellow countrymen. Now, David might not have known these men personally who were turning him in or ratting him out, but they were still part of the, the national family of Israel. And so the word stranger here that David's using isn't referring to them as being foreigners, but rather really as people he thought he knew. But I guess I don't know them. They're strangers. And what makes matters worse for David is that these men are ruthless, he says. They're violent. They're seeking David's life. They don't just want to malign him and malign his character. Yes, they're going to do that, but they want to see him destroyed. These men, their their true colors now have been exposed. They do not love God, David says. They don't set God before them. They are first and uppermost in their thoughts, love, and affection. They love themselves, they love power, they love control, right? Their their hiding is over. They are now seen and exposed for who they truly are, just as we will always be at one point exposed for who we truly are. We can only hide for so long. God's light, his glory is going to eventually expose us for who we are. And I know for some in here, maybe maybe you're you're resonating with this. Uh, you've lived maybe an aspect of this type of, of, of hurt, this pain, this betrayal. Those close to you maybe have turned on you. You've been hurt. You've been wounded by those who once sat maybe around your dining room table, whose kids play with your kids, who sat in your living room, with the people that maybe at one point you laughed with. So what do we do when we experience this level of pain and hurt by those we love? David says we turn to a faithful God who never changes. See, that's what verses 1 and 2 reveal. It reveals David's desperation. In his prayer to God, in his crying out to God, he's requesting two things from him, salvation and vindication. And these two requests, salvation and vindication, they're connected to one another, right? And so, so David's character, it's being attacked. It is being maligned. He is being accused of being a traitor to, to King Saul. Now, nothing, nothing was further from the truth. David was faithful to Saul. He was an ally of Saul, but we all know how quickly rumors spread, right? When something is spread and said about someone else, people's sinful and insatiable desire for gossip and slander, we just kind of, we kind of gravitate to and don't ask many follow-up questions, right? We, we like to see people in positions of authority and power. We, we like kind of love to see a little bit of their, their fall from grace, right? Like we're just kind of sucked into this. Now, the other day, Amy and I were standing in line at a, at a store checking out, and I was just reading through the headlines of like the tabloids that, that, that line those, those racks leading up to the checkout counter. You ever just sat and just read the headlines? It's crazy, right? And, and, and as I was sitting there reading them, I'm like, I'm thinking, how are these in existence? Like, like I'm, I'm starting to think through the economics of it. Like, somebody's paying for this. 
right? Like someone's paying someone to write these crazy stories to make someone look horrible. Like, and I'm like, who's buying these that's, con- that's contributing to the, the fact that, okay, they can distribute and print more and get them out there and these, these just insane, crazy stories. And, and I was thinking, as I was looking at these, I'm like, well, probably for the same reason that people get sucked into conspiracy theories and go down that rabbit hole. Like we just, there's something within the human heart that just wants to believe kind of the worst in others because, because it makes for a good story. Right? We want to follow along, right? The, the crazier, the wilder, the better, right? It makes headline news. But I also was kind of thinking in my own heart in that moment, like, why, why are these here? I'm like, well, a lot of times if I, if I see someone who's once in power and all of a sudden they, they screw up, they make mistakes, and all of a sudden they're found out and they kind of tumble and their whole family is just being broken, like, there's part of my sinfulness that's like, ah, it just makes me feel better about myself. At least I'm not that messed up, right? I got my, I got my life together, Right? Like it just kind of makes, and I think that's why just as human beings, we kind of get sucked into these types of stories. Well, same thing to some degree, maybe with, with David. The human heart is the same today as it was then. And, and so David's name is being maligned by those at one point he once trusted, and people are believing that he is, is, is a traitor to Saul, even though he's never given any evidence that that's, that's the case whatsoever. Maybe your name at one point has been maligned by others, maybe your character attacked. What is our hope in that moment? Where do we turn? You see, David cried out to God for vindication, the vindication of his name, the clearing of his name. And he's saying that that the clearing of my name is going to come through his salvation. And so when you think of salvation here, yes, there's an aspect of eternal life and eternal salvation, but he's also just simply referencing the fact that they're trying to kill me Saul's trying to kill me. God, you have anointed me. You have set me apart. You've promised things in my life. And so, God, I'm asking for you to save my physical life. And by saving my physical life, it's vindicating my name against those who are seeking to destroy it. Do you see, do you see how the, those two things are, are connected in what David's requesting? God, you have promised something. If this happens to my life, then it's going to go against your promise. And because your name is, is mighty and your name is powerful, God, I'm asking for you to save and overwhelm what, the, what sinful men are trying to do. Let's see, as one commentator puts it here, it says the, the only way for, for his reputation to be reestablished would be as a direct result of God's saving his life. And we see David's faith expressed in, in, in his future vindication through God's name and through God's might. You see, David, as mighty as he was, right? He had just pushed back a, a Philistine army. Right? David was powerful and had powerful men behind him. But as powerful as he was, he still knew he needed to look beyond himself for help. What David did in this moment was he rested in God's character. And that's what it means to be saved by his name. Resting in your character. You see, what is God's name? What is God's character? Well, he's good. He's faithful. He's just. He's love. He is sovereign. He's mighty. He is a provider. He's the sustainer, the upholder of life. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is steadfast. He is unmovable. He is unchanging. Listen, we could spend the rest of our time here this morning just reflecting on the character and the attributes of God, of his glorious name. You see, David here in this moment, as everything's turning against him, David dove headfirst into the deep end of God's attributes and his character. It was an expression, as he did that, it was an expression of faith. 
You see, faith is not believing something so deeply that you hope it comes true. That's not what biblical faith is. I'm going to believe something so much that I'm hopeful that it'll come true. That I hope that God is love. Or I, I hope that God is mighty. That's not biblical faith. I, I, I'm going to believe it as best as I can and then just see, roll the dice, we'll see if it comes true. Listen, that's not faith. Faith is believing what God has already revealed about himself. That God is love. God is faithful. Right? God is mighty. This is who he is. This is his character because he's revealed it himself. We didn't have to discover it. He said, this is who I am. And so by faith, we believe it and we rest in it. That's faith. So in moments and seasons of desperation, we rest in the character of God and by faith believe that who God has revealed himself to be is who he is. That we are created to be dependent upon him. And that's what we see take place as the psalm continues to unfold. So David here first is, 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 is looking to God, right? He's desperate for God. And now we see the second thing in this psalm here is that David's dependence on God. David's dependence on God. De- desperation always leads to dependence. So the question is, is going to be who or what are you depending on? In the first few verses, revealed, it revealed David's desperation. The next couple of verses are now revealing his dependence because that's what you're seeing take place in verses 4 and 5. It says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. See, David is turning his, te- his attention away from his predicament and to the character and the nature of God. Right? See, what's, what's verse 4 begin with? What's that word? It's behold. It's the Hebrew word hene. Right? It means see God. <laughs> see God. Look at God. That's what he's saying here. See, we often, we often fixate too much on our problems, too much on ourselves, too much wallowing in our despair and not, not on a God who is our help. I, I know for me, when I'm going through seasons of difficulty, I dwell on a problem and, and don't turn from it to, to the one where my help actually comes from. Now, it's not that I don't look to God. It's not that in those moments, in those seasons, I'm like, God, would you, would you help me? But when that help is slow to come and I don't like to wait on the Lord, right, as we just sang, but what we see often throughout the themes of Scripture are waiting on the Lord. I don't like to wait. And so as the trouble continues, I find myself often coming back into the deep end of my despair, my, my anxiety, my worry, my problems, and dwelling on them and feeling sorry for myself. But here, what do we see David do? There's this shifting away from the problem and on to the God who saves, right? Behold God. Behold God. Look now to God. See God. That's what verse 4 is about. Don't look at the problem. Don't wallow in the problem. See the one who provides and who saves. Do you see God as your, your helper, as David says? God is my helper. Do you see God as your helper? This past week, I, I, threw, my, I threw my back out. And I've always had a little bit of a bad back, and, and, uh, and so I threw it out, and it was one of those moments where it's like, as soon as it went out, like, I dropped to my knees, right? Like, I'm, I'm down. People walked in the room, they'd be like, oh, sorry, you're praying. Like, no, I'm, I'm praying, but, like, I'm praying. I can get up. It was that, it was that bad. Um, it, it was pretty bad for a few days. I could, I could move, but just barely, and it was just through pain. Like, every step was just in pain. 
And so the other day, I, I was coming home, and my, I, I came home after we got the, the torrential, you know, monsoon. And, and so I'm coming into the, the house, and my bag's just super tight. And I, I need to take my shoes off because I didn't want to track, you know, mud and, and dirt throughout the, throughout the house. And so I'm looking, uh, you know, two feet down, and I'm like, I can't, can't do it. Like, I mean, I just get here, I'm like, ah, it's just so tight. So my lovely and impatient wife comes over, bends down, unties my dirty, muddy shoes, takes them off for me so that I don't have to lean over and I could just kind of crawl in through the house and back into bed. Uh, it, it was a pretty humbling moment, <laughs> I'm going to be honest with you. Humbling moment because, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm a guy, right? I'm a grown man. I can take my own shoes off, right? But in that moment, my body was like, no, you cannot, right? You can't, right? Like, I could barely move. Like, I, need, I needed help. Like, I was helpless in that moment. And, and there's just a lot of beauty in that, the marriage relationship where we see the best and the worst of one another, don't we? Right? And, and so she, she helped me out there. There's just a lot of beauty. I was thinking through that this week and this text here. There's just a lot of beauty in, in those words of David. God is my helper. He's my helper. Right? He's, the Lord is the upholder of my life. What a beautiful picture this is of the gospel. That we apart from God's grace. We're helpless and we're condemned. We're lost and dead in our sins. Yet, what has Christ done for us? He came to us, right? He, he took our, our burdens upon himself. He carried the weight of our condemnation upon his shoulders, right? He saved us because we couldn't save ourselves. In Matthew 14, we read of, of the story of Jesus walking on the water, and the disciples are in a boat, and they see him. And so Peter, of course, right, calls, like, Jesus, let me come to you. So Jesus, yeah, come on, let's go. So Peter hops out of the boat and starts walking to Jesus on, on the water too, for a moment, for a moment. Peter doesn't last long on the surface of the water miraculously. Now, why is that? Is it because Jesus isn't sufficient enough? I can get you, I can get you about five yards, Peter, but uh, you know, you're going to have to do the rest. Is it because Jesus isn't strong enough to sustain Peter upon the waves? No, of course not. It's because Peter took his eyes off of Jesus. It's what the text says in Matthew 14. He took his eyes off of Jesus. Matthew 14, verse 30 says, But when he, Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And see, Peter cried out to Jesus when the problems of the world around him were too overwhelming. See, that's what I often do. It's what we often do, right? We fixate on the problem rather than on the one who saves. But yet, what do we see Jesus do in that text? In verse 31 of Matthew 14, it says, Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? I mean, what a picture that is of Psalm 54. What a picture that is of what Christ does for those who belong to him. He's our helper. He's your sustainer. He's the upholder of your life. He's the one who rescues and saves us from our own demise. What are we called to do? We're called by, by grace through faith is then to keep our eyes fixed on him, right? And, and to do so, to keep our eyes fixed on him, takes daily discipline because our eyes will not naturally drift toward the beauty of Christ. It just won't. Rather, our eyes are going to naturally drift toward the things of this world. Our eyes will naturally drift toward the struggles and the sufferings of this present age. So what must we do? We must, through grace-driven effort, right, strive day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, to train ourselves in godliness. What we must do through grace-driven effort is to set our minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. But again, I'm going to ask, but how? 
right? Okay, I get it, Matt. Yes, set my mind. But like, how? Because I just, I just always want to drift this way. Well, how do we do? So scripture shows us. It's by, rem- by remembering the gospel. It's by remembering and rehearsing the gospel in our minds and our hearts daily. It's through reminding ourselves and one another of our identity in Christ, who we are in him. You see, Paul says in Colossians 3 that we're to set our minds on things above. But then he says, here's why. For you have died. He's reminding them of their identity. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. So as you dwell on who you now are, this new creation through Christ, through no work of your own, right? Dwell on that. Set your minds then on that God who has done this miraculous work in your heart. Your life is hidden in Christ. You're a new people, a redeemed people, a reconciled people, a restored people, right? I'm a son of God. You're a daughter of God most high. Remember these truths. Beat them into your heads continuously, Martin Luther would say. Rehearse them over and over and remind one another of these things. It's why the church is so important to our lives. In fact, I would argue that it's vital to our spiritual well-being. That, that the, the church gathering is not just about, it's not just about getting together with good friends, and, and we have good friends here, but it's not just about getting together with good friends to plan the next event, the next get-together, the next party, right? The church is not an event venue. That's not the church. That's the purpose of the church. The church gathers together to remind one another of these things, of what we believe and who we are in Christ. And when we come together and there's some that are needing help and needing these reminders, we sing these truths and we say, believe this. Believe this. We need one another and we need to protect one another from drifting away from these life-saving and life-giving realities. That's the mission of the church. That's why scripture is so emphatic on the gathering together, not forsaking this. Because we're, we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We need one another to say, don't leave this God who is amazing, who is awesome. Remember who you are. Again, this psalm was, was a psalm of David's experience, but one written to be sung corporately so that God's people would be reminded that, that, that just as God is David's helper and upholder, he's your helper too. He's your upholder of your life. And as we rest in dependence upon God, that results in lastly in our devotion. And that's what we see here, David's devotion to God in these last couple of verses. See, David's response to God's faithfulness and help was worship. In verses six and seven, he says, with a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good, for he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. You see, worship is always going to be rooted in what we value the most. And so if our dependence for our very life is, is rooted in Christ alone, then naturally then our worship is going to be directed toward him because he will be what is uppermost in our thoughts and our loves and affections. Yet we also, what we also see here in David's response is that, that his worship of God was not private, but it was, it was public, Right? This, this free will offering he talks about is found in the book of Deuteronomy when God was leading his people into the promised land. And it's there that we see that, that God's promise to defeat Israel's enemies, to, to, to move them out of the land in which God will bring them, and then for them to, to dwell in safety with him as their God, and that their response to God's deliverance and God's uh, fighting the battles for them is then to offer sacrifices before the Lord and to recount them before others. Listen, all that God has done. Remember all that he has done. 
That's what we see here with David. He's, he's not going into a, a closet to worship privately. I know he's, he's going to the temple, right? He's, he's inviting all to hear, hear of God's deliverance, hear of the help he's, he's given me. And when we hear of God's work in people's lives, don't we, doesn't it inspire faith and gratitude in our lives as well? Like when we, when we hear of, of God's working in people, people's lives, whether it be through, uh, through salvation, whether we hear someone who's sick or in the hospital. Like just this past week, we had a, a little girl in our church who's in the hospital. And so daily, just getting updates on Slack. And all of a sudden, the church is responding. We're praying for you. And then she, we're home. And then the church is like, man, we're, so, we're, just, we're just like so glad and joyful that, that God's helped. Like that inspires faith in our God. And, and David's saying, no, come hear what God has done. Right? He's going into the temple. He's inviting others to hear this. If, if you're going through intense suffering, doesn't, doesn't it encourage you to sit down and talk with someone who else has gone through that type of suffering as well? Now God's helped them through it. Of course it does, right? Our, our worship and praise of God should be public and inviting to others to join in and rejoice in a God who's faithful. Our worship should be encouraging and upbuilding to those who still struggle to, to persevere. And, and, and we sit down and we say, no, stay strong. God's good. Remember who he is. Right, keep your eyes fixed on him. He is faithful. He is good. Our worship should be rooted in God's finished work because it's rooted in his unchangeable character. See, in verse 7, even though David still faced trouble, what's he confidently asserting? He says, God has delivered me from every trouble. Right, why could he say that, even though trouble was still in front of him? Because biblical hope Please hear this. Biblical hope is not a blind wish for what might be, but a confident expectation in what will be. That's biblical hope. I'm going to say it again. Biblical hope is not a blind wish for what might be, but it's a confident expectation in what will be. If God says he will deliver, he's going to deliver. If God says he's going to save, he's going to save. Regardless of life circumstances, you find yourself in in that moment. This is the hope we rest in today, church. Because Jesus has come, because Jesus has died, because Jesus has risen, all the promises of God will come to be. Though we face seasons of suffering in this life, we can confidently proclaim that God is good, that God is faithful, because there is coming a day when all that's broken will come undone. It's already been written. Though the world continues to spiral into darkness and rebellion, we can still rejoice because there's coming a day when Christ will return to reign over all creation with all authority. Though we face still the sting of death, we can still sing, as we've sung this morning, that the sting of death is gone. Why? Because Jesus has defeated it, and there's coming a day when death will be eradicated. There is no enemy which stands in our way any longer. The resurrection of Christ has defeated all enemies. Though the world will seek to stifle the advancement of the church, we still know what Jesus has said. I'm building my church, right? And the gates of hell will not overcome it. The gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. And so because this is true, church, brothers, sisters, we pray with confidence. We go with confidence. We rest in confidence. Our God is our helper he is the upholder of our life. He is good, he is faithful, and his name is mighty. This is who he is. For those who do not believe, the call from this psalm is to trust in the one name 
the one name that can give you eternal life. That there is no other name, there is no salvation in no one else under heaven given among men by which you can be saved. So repent and believe this gospel. We said at the very beginning, names matter. So what name are you trusting in? Let's pray. God, we come to you praising your mighty name. Resting in who you are, that you are mighty, that you are good, that you are faithful, that you are love, that you are gracious, that you are merciful. Again, we can go on and on and on here. And you have revealed who you are. And so, God, may we, by faith, rest in that. Rest in what is true, not what we wish to be true, but what is true. God, help those who are weak here. Help those who right now are like, I want to believe. I just struggle. Remind them of what's, what's seen in the Gospel of Mark. I, I believe. Help my unbelief. There's probably so many of us in here that can resonate with that reality, that, that statement. I believe, but help my unbelief. And so, God, in our, even our unbelief, God, we thank you that you are long-suffering, that you are patient, that you care, that you are full of compassion and, and, and mercy. And so, God, I pray that we, wherever we are in this room, some in here are coming in and life is going well. There's, there's family harmony. There's harmony in, in work relationships, and, and, and you're just, it's evident of your grace and so, God, even there, may they may not stray from you, but to turn to you and still say, it's through your grace and, and you alone. But there might be some in here that are coming in here wounded, who are hurt, who are broken, who are suffering. God, would you, through the, the working of your word, through your spirit, and now even as the people of God rise and sing in just a moment, to sing the truth of who you are. May, may we be reminded of these truths and, and from your people May they hear many saying, believe this, hope in this, rest in this. God, so we turn to you in these few moments here just to, to, to quiet our hearts and to rest in your grace and your mercy. Church, let's do that for just a moment here. Let's just, let's just sit in the quiet. Let's meditate upon the truth. Let's, let's dwell upon God's character, his attributes, his, his, who he is, and then we'll stand and we're gonna sing in response to it.